Good morning. For those of you who may not know me, I'm Jim Harris. I've been a ruling elder at Trinity for many years, and I am going to be the one, other than Mitchell, to bring the Word of God to you this morning. It's entitled, Contrasting Refuge, and the text is Psalm 16. It is always a tremendous opportunity, blessing, and privilege to be asked to preach to you this morning, to bring the Word of God. Do know that this is nothing that I do. There is nothing, there is nothing that I do, not only in church, but in all my life that pleases me more or is more important than this task. I am very encouraged to be a member of a church that empowers its elders to serve the church in this way. May our God be glorified. Please pray with me. My Lord and my God, I am reminded of what your servant John Calvin prioritized many years ago when he wrote that there are two basic things that we need to know. We need to know you, our God, and we need to know ourselves. And in the context of the message today, we need to know our need of refuge and where to seek it. Lord, we need these even today, especially today. I pray this morning through the words that you give me that we will accomplish both. Would your Holy Spirit cause this to be? Through Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen. As we continue our study of selected psalms this morning, we will be considering specifically Psalm 16 that is called a Mictown of David. We don't have much in way of detail regarding the occasion that prompted this psalm. We are only told that it is a Mictown of David. It's a term I'd never heard before until I started studying, and it's a very rare term, Mictown. It is generally thought to mean precious, golden, or jewel. For this reason, some have called this psalm David's jewel or the golden psalm. Charles Spurgeon even entitled it the psalm of precious secret. And so it is. Please listen with me now as I read God's word to you. Psalm 16, a mictown of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips." The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
you made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. And now this psalm begins in a very familiar manner, but then it takes a twist. The psalmist David finds himself in need of preservation and refuge. But unlike a lot of the other psalms, he does not appear to be in any physical danger or urgent need. Still, we learn that he has need of this refuge, apparently regarding the whole course of his life. And David calls out to God. We all know that life is hard, do we not? We all know this. So are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you troubled by your sin? Are you angry by what you learn and encounter? Perhaps when you watch the news every night. Are there issues that keep you awake at night? This morning we will look to Psalm 16 to direct us towards help. We will learn that we have two basic choices. The one true God, we should turn to him, or to the various other gods that compete for our attention. But how are we to process and consider these words that I just read to you? How are we to think of Scripture? While we understand that all Scripture is the Word of God, ultimately given by the Logos of God, the Word made flesh, Jesus through the Holy Spirit, we do recognize that God used various human authors and the circumstances of their lives to communicate truth to those that read or hear these words. So first, we need to glean what we can based upon David's original intent or the author's original intent, the human author. But we must not stop there or even consider this to be the most important perspective. There is much more. We are to always consider Scripture as it instructs us regarding Jesus. To miss this is to essentially relegate Scripture to being merely history or good advice. Finally, we must apply Scripture to our own lives. We must determine from these truths written about 2,500 years ago how they communicate truths to our lives today. And further, we must be changed by these words. We seek this change now, even this morning. Therefore, as we consider Psalm 16, we are going to look at it from these three perspectives. First, what was David thinking? What were his issues? What did those of his time gain from what he wrote? What was the heart of God regarding these words? What preservation and refuge was theirs? In this, we must remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Next, what do we learn of Jesus? This is always our most important lesson. While all Scripture is from Jesus and about Jesus, we learn from Peter's sermon in Acts 2 that Psalm 16 uniquely refers to Jesus. We are told that David speaks 
concerning him. We additionally learn in Acts 13 from the Apostle Paul that this psalm is of the man through whom is preached forgiveness of sins. He is speaking, of course, of Jesus. Even more, as Pastor Mitchell has taught us, all psalms are special in this regard. Jesus is not only the one who, as God, gave David the words of Psalm 16. He, as a man, actually praised them back to God. And by hearing this psalm as a prayer of Jesus, we learn much of his very mind, heart, and humanity. What preservation and reference and refuge did Jesus need? And finally, what about us? What does this mean for us? We certainly can hear and pray this psalm as David did, but we actually have a much greater perspective. As Jesus prayed Psalm 16, we hear him also praying, not just for himself, but for us, his body, the church, for you and me. What insight, hope, and confidence can this give us? How are we to think and live differently? So with these goals in mind, please now briefly consider with me Psalm 16, first of all, from the perspective of David and Israel of his day. David needed preservation, and it from God, the Mighty One. As we have already said, we do not know specifically why. There was apparently no immediate emergency, as was so often the case. And it was certainly because of his sins, those being extreme, including murder. Or perhaps it was struggles of being a king with much opposition. David was also a good king that cared for his people when they were in trouble. Likely, it was all of the above. David's life required help from that which was outside his being. David knew who he was and who he was not. And David knew that he was not sufficient. He knew from experience and his understanding of his relationship with the law of God that any goodness observed in him only came from his God. He knew that goodness did not naturally reside in him or in the world around him. He knew he could not help himself. David was also an observer of people. As David looked out into the world of his day, he saw two distinct peoples. He saw the saints, those being changed by their trust in God, whom he called the excellent ones and those who run after other gods. I believe this contrast to be the core of Psalm 16. David delighted in those that trusted in his God, the one who is able to bring preservation and refuge. However, he warned of multiplying sorrows for those who pursued the other gods, those gods that he did not even want to speak of. David was also warning that the Lord had forbidden such worship and with consequences for those who did. This is idolatry. David was not going to drink of their blood offerings or even name their gods. And David wanted these to know of a better way. 
He wanted Israel to understand, even in practical terms, sense that to run after, to put their trust in something or even a concept that has no power, to run after and depend upon falsity is to only disappoint. Now, please understand this. David was not wanting to deprive Israel of other good options. Rather, he was imploring Israel to run to, to call out to, to trust in the one option that could actually provide refuge. His instructions were not merely law, doctrines, or theological concepts, even as important as all of these are, but it was a very practical thing. These other gods cannot help them. He was telling them these other gods will not be sufficient. By contrast, David chose to follow the one Lord, Yahweh, my eternal Lord. It was towards the Lord that David directed attention and his life. He was far from perfect in this, but he was, the Lord was the bent of his life. The Lord, as always, was before him, whatever his issue was. And David was not disappointed. His lot in life was secure. His inheritance was wonderful and beautiful. Whatever the issues, the Lord gave him counsel, even in the night, when anxieties and fears seemed the most severe. He is now counseled heart, or what the King James Version calls to as his reigns, or in our language, his gut. The word literally used there was his kidneys instructed him. His identity to the very core of his being was in God rather than his issues. Therefore, his heart experienced gladness and his whole being rejoiced. His troubles did not overwhelm him, nor did his sin. He knew that his mercies of God were abundant and that God had restored to him the joy of his salvation. He was being preserved by God who promises refuge. David was confident that he would not be abandoned or ultimately corrupted. God had provided him the path of life, pleasures forevermore, as David hints, even of eternal life. So when faced with the temptation of other gods, David is exhorting Israel and all others hearing or reading his words, and this includes us here this morning, to trust in Yahweh, his only secure source of refuge. This is the contrast between experience in the fullness of joy on one hand and multiple sorrows and destruction on the other. David makes his choice clear. Indeed, the Lord was his chosen portion and his cup. But this is David, a sinful and troubled man, one that we can look in the mirror and relate to. I know I certainly can. But how can Jesus also pray these words? Is he not radically different from David? To answer this, we must understand Jesus to be the God-man. This is where our theology comes to assist us. Christ Jesus was perfectly and totally God, all the while being perfectly and totally man. Jesus, as the perfect man, was really a man. 
He needed preservation and rescue from all issues excepting sin. And he was subject to the brokenness of life even more than we are. What I mean is this. His sinless, compassionate nature compels him to respond to all wrong in a far greater manner than do our sinful, far less compassionate natures. We have become callous to brokenness and may even walk by it without giving nary a thought, while Jesus' perfect sensitivity experiences all of its rottenness. One way for us somewhat to understand this is to consider that Jesus did tell us that we must be as little children. Does this not give you pause to wonder a bit? So let's do that. Let's consider a small child, say, coming upon a dead animal, or perhaps a human laying or sleeping over a building vent dressed in rags. What is this child's reaction most likely? Now consider your reaction. Are children not far more troubled by this than we are? Have we not become conditioned to ignore? But... Jesus was and is not so conditioned. When he encounters something contrary to God's very good creation, he is rightly disturbed, even angry. He knows that this was not the way it was supposed to be, and Jesus weeps. But you may object. Could not Jesus just speak a word or touch something and bring restoration? Well, he's certainly our king, and he rules changes and restores everything as God, he is omnipotent. But it is important for us to hear that he also weeps. We see this, for example, that he wept as a man over Jerusalem as he observed them being sheep without a shepherd, even though he knew as God that he would, in fact, be their shepherd, was their shepherd. His compassion was evident we see it the same, the same as he encountered his friend Lazarus' death. His compassion there was also evident. We see, the, oh, he knew, although he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus, he wept. He was deeply troubled, even angry. So we now focus our attention on Jesus, both the author and the Word made flesh and the one who prays as the Son of Man, this psalm. As we consider Jesus, please understand that we must keep intention that he was and is the God-man. But as we consider him praying this psalm, we will be emphasizing his humanity. Were, he, were we to be considering one of his miracles or his forgiving sin, we would be instead emphasizing his being God. As I read Psalm 16 again, I want you not only to not only consider Jesus praying these words, but also to contemplate Jesus praying for you, his body, as he prays for himself. Please hear a prayer of Jesus. What a wonderful, intimate privilege it is to our overhearing him. Jesus is praying, preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. 
I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, and you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me my counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he says, Amen. This psalm helps answer several questions, at least two. How could Jesus, as a man in the midst of trials and temptations, accomplish the work he was given to do? And how could Jesus face death with peace and even joy? Before we consider this, we must understand that Jesus was not a superhero calling upon his superpower, like ones we enjoy cheering for in the movies. Jesus was not Superman, but the God-man. Here again, our theology assists us as we dig a bit deeper into the dual nature of Christ Jesus. We, he was always both God and man, but never in a confused or blended way. He was not God taken on flesh, a flesh veneer, or a man with supernatural power, or a God-to-man-to-God transformer with a toggle switch. He never ceased to be both. While never ceasing to be God, Jesus in his humanity absolutely needed help, counsel, and encouragement. So we must ask, what did Jesus rely upon? And what can we humans learn from what Jesus relied upon? We begin by considering that Jesus relied upon prayer. Jesus, Jesus begins to pray, calling upon God to preserve him. He acknowledged his need of refuge and placed his trust in El, the mighty one, the omnipotent helper of his people, God his Father to provide. But I suspect our image of Jesus may not be of a man that needed help that needed to rely upon anything outside of himself. Now we know that we certainly need help. We get weary and discouraged by the issues and trials that face us. There is so much brokenness and we are overwhelmed. We tend to compromise by thinking, that's just how life is. What can we do? There is so much need and then we just keep walking by. But Jesus, more than we, knows that life was not meant to be this way. As we have already noted, he mourns the loss of good creation. 
Okay, let's continue here. Jesus, being humbled, recognized his human limitations and relied upon his Father to provide for him. I will just give you a few examples of Jesus' experience in hardship and brokenness. Jesus' need for food and water was not just an illusion when he hungered and thirsted in the wilderness during his season of temptation. When the angels came and ministered to him, his need was actually critical. As he conducted his ministry to his own people, his people Israel rejected him. Even his family thought him to be crazy. Literally, when informed that Jesus was nearby, we are told that they went out to seize him, for they were saying, his family was saying, his mother was saying that he is out of his mind. He experienced ridicule and even bigotry. How can anything good come out of Nazareth? He experienced multiple plots and threats to be killed, beginning when he was a baby and continuing throughout his life, as we even heard from the scripture read by Ron this morning. Jesus was troubled in spirit because he was going to be betrayed by one of his own close friends. As he prayed recording, recording the death that his father called him to experience, we are told he sweat drops of blood. Simon Peter, one of his most trusted disciples, denied him three times as he awaited trial. Jesus was not exempt from being hurt. And, and I don't mean just only physically. Jesus was not exempt from being hurt. He endured a false trial whereby he was convicted based upon lies and in his most extreme, as he hung on the cross, he endured the wrath of God, his Father, as punishment for our sin. So Jesus keenly knew the need for all of humanity, including himself, to place their trust in the God that he knew so intimately. In these truths, in these, those that he was proclaiming here the saints that he delights in them, his father delights in them. Please hear this. Do you know that in Jesus is thinking of you? The saints are all those who trust in God. Jesus is saying that he delights in you. He wants you and me to understand what he has learned from his study in the prophet Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Jesus wants us to hear this and believe his Father loves and delights in us. Can you hear the song? And if God delights in us, so we ought to delight in each other. So we ought to delight in each other. By contrast, Jesus is grieved and even weeps over those that run after other gods. He knows that these gods cannot save and that those trusting in them would have even multiplying sorrows. However, we are now still in the time of his patience. Jesus was and is a friend of sinners. 
Do you qualify? I do. He is still pleading, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are any of you weary with heavy hearts? Can you hear Jesus crying out to you, please, please do not follow after that which cannot relieve weariness, that which cannot give rest, that I can mend heavy hearts, that only I can mend heavy hearts. Come unto me, the one who can and will do all of this. So instead of running after those that demand drink offerings of blood, Jesus is imploring you and me to come to him and by contrast, drink sweet wine and eat pleasant bread. And this contrast could not be more stark. We will a little bit later come to the table set before us. As we spiritually commune with him at this table, Jesus wants us to know of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his ongoing mediation as he has returned still as the God-man to sit at the right hand of his trusted father. Jesus understood that he was called to do. He is reminding us that I did all of this, that you may come and see the beauty of my Father. Your most troublesome issue, your sin, has been dealt with. Is this not a beautiful thing? But there will come a day of eternal separation for those that continue to trust in that which cannot satisfy while Jesus is still now calling, you must understand that this will not last forever. There will come a day when the followers of other gods will hear the words, I never knew you, depart from me. Their names will literally no longer be on Jesus' lips as the psalm declares. So it is in love that this psalm warns us of this. So please come now to the one who died that your refuge and preservation might be secure, that your sins will be forgiven and your brokenness restored. Jesus knew with confidence that despite the fact that he was being called to suffer and die, that his times had fallen in pleasant places and that he could know, I have a beautiful inheritance. He recalled the prophet Isaiah declaring that even as he would be called to suffer in an unimaginable way that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These were not just some dead guy's words as we here argue today. So our next point is this. Jesus took refuge in Scripture. Jesus knew that these very words were written about him and that good news 
gospel would flow from these truths. He, as we considered during our Lent studies, was and is the righteous one, God's servant. He knew the plan for grace established before time began. He knew that through his righteous obedience that many would be accounted as righteous. He knew that through the suffering, his suffering, he would bear their iniquities. He knew that as he was numbered with the transgressors, as he poured out his soul to death, that he would bear the sins of and make intercession for these transgressors, including you and me, as we look to Jesus for our preservation and refuge. And in these truths, he trusted and took refuge. This is how he could accomplish his work, suffer and face death with joy. He also knew that as King James expresses it, that he would receive a goodly heritage. Jesus was anticipating his body, the church. We are his reward for his obedient trust. In fact, we are called his bride. What a tremendous honor and privilege is ours. Will Jesus not care for his wife? Jesus remembered what his father had already done for him as he trusted God. Jesus remembered, perhaps, that as he frequently went to his father in the night to pray, that his father always instructed him. Jesus may have recalled early in his ministry needing counsel as to who would be his closest disciples, those we call apostles. His father, during an all-nighter prayer meeting, provided him with the names. With his father always available, always at his hand, Jesus knew that he could not possibly be shaken. It was not without strong reason that he is, was known by Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Still, as Jesus took refuge in his father's preservation, his heart remained glad. His whole being rejoiced. He knew that he was secure and that his father would never abandon him. His body would never, even in death, see corruption. Jesus knew that death would have no power over him and that he would return to his Father in his resurrected human body. And he is now and forever will be, as a resurrected human, the God-man, sitting at the right hand of the one he trusted and is experienced in the fullness of joy and even pleasures, even pleasures forevermore. But what of us? How can we today pray this psalm and experience joy? We must first acknowledge our need of preservation and our need of refuge and cry out to God. Are we not in desperate need? And as we consider our need, can we proclaim not merely with our lips, but with our soul, our trust in God for all of our life? However, even as we trust, we must also admit and repent of our propensity to run after other gods. How so? As the pen of Robert Robinson reminds us in his beautiful hymn that we sung earlier this morning, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. Is this not also true, even as we trust in Jesus? We all do this. As we experience our sin and brokenness and observe sin and brokenness in others, whether this be lawlessness, war, sickness, immorality, oppression, bigotry, violence, poverty, hunger, and more, are we not tempted even temporarily or by knee-jerk reaction to run to the other gods of politics, law, philosophies, money, corporations, education, science, weapons, power, family, traditions, opinions of friends, talking heads on TV, and on and on, even our own intuition and the like. Anything else that we think may provide not merely benefit, but those things that we do, if we're honest, trust in for some refuge. By contrast, David and Jesus are calling us to trust in the God rather than these false gods. We are to contemplate the insufficiencies and sorrows from trusting other gods. Do we trust God enough to rely upon Him for our lot, our whole being? Have we, have you, like David and Jesus, set the Lord always before you? Is all of this real or just nice-sounding Sunday words? When you are having what I call a two o'clock in the morning moment, a two o'clock in the morning moment, I think you know what those are. Do you seek the counsel of God? Does this counsel of God bring us security so that our sleep is restored? Do we awaken to a new day given to us by God that we can rejoice in? And what of our future? Do we realize that all of the benefits of the covenant of grace are ours, that the inheritance given to Jesus is also ours? It is as we trust in Him. Do you know this? Are we in Christ and Christ in us? And what of our bodies? We, like David, will die, and our bodies will be corrupted. The Apostle Peter, in his Acts 2 sermon, references Psalm 16, but then declares, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with him, an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foreknew and spoke the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. We, like David, will die. Yet we can trust in God for other promises of preservation that ultimately includes our bodies. We believe, as we confess every Sunday, in the resurrection of our bodies. David understood this promise from Job, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And Job said this, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And we have this promise from the lips of Jesus. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. There's much more that could be said. As we trust in the refuge promised by Psalm 16, 
we can be certain that our bodies, while now corruptible, will be raised incorruptible. My friends, there is no assurance in Scripture or from personal experience that our life will not be hard. I have no need to convince you of this. I'm sure we can all testify. There is no assurance that we will not confront or witness much that we perceive to be wrong. But we have choices as how to deal with these. Who or what do we run to? Psalm 16 lays out the argument for our realizing this confidence only by placing our trust in the same one as Jesus himself did. El, Yahweh, God the Father, the Lord Almighty. With David and Jesus, the Lord must be our chosen portion and our cup. And we accomplish this by placing our trust in Jesus, the one who reveals to us the Father. We affirm all of this as we in a few moments come to this table set before us where we will enjoy sweet wine and bread as we partake of and receive the fullness of joy that is Christ himself, his body broken and his blood shed that our sins will be forgiven and brokenness restored. We will taste and we will see that the Lord isn't that good. I close now with the prayer of Thomas Akempis. Grant me, O most sweet and loving Jesus, to rest in you above every creature, above all health and beauty, above all glory and honor, above all power and dignity, above all joy and exultation, above all fame and praise, above all sweetness and consolation, above all hope and promise, above all desert and desire, above all gifts and presence which you are able to bestow or infuse above all joys and gladness, which the mind is capable of receiving and feeling. Finally, above angels and archangels and above all the host of heaven, above all things visible and invisible and above all that falls short of yourself, O you my God. Amen.